Welcome to a History of Submarines podcast. Episode 5.3, The Open Secret, America's Hidden War Against U-Boats. Since the start of hostilities in 1939, the USA had been slowly expanding its armed forces, including its navy, but it was a slow process. President Franklin D. Roosevelt kept a private line of communications with British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Roosevelt was inclined to help the British, but isolationism and anti-war sentiment ran strong in the U.S. in 1939 and 1940. This was no different in 1941. In Germany, U-boat numbers were finally expanding. Iron ore mines and steel factories in occupied territories were now producing for the Reich. The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact between Berlin and Moscow supplied the Nazi regime with much-needed oil, rubber, copper, and other rare materials for the war effort. In Germany itself, industrial production was expanding. In the spring of 1941, Dönitz's force counted 100 U-boats, of which some 30 were out on patrol at any one time, double the number of the fall of 1940. This resulted in higher losses for the British merchant fleet. Merchant crew losses were now mounting to such a level that the government was forced to issue an emergency decree setting up an organized pool of crew members. Between January and May of 1941, more than 1.7 million tons in merchant shipping was lost to U-boats, mines, long-range aircraft attacks, and service raiders. The situation was getting serious. With the Battle of Britain air war now behind them and the possibility of a German invasion next to impossible, Churchill and the Admiralty focused the Navy's attention on protecting convoys from the U-boat scourge. The priority was now the protection of merchants and transports in their convoys. Actively hunting U-boats came second as this divested much-needed resources from convoy protection. The convoys needed to be protected, but they would also serve as bait. That it was not easy going for U-boats was also all too clear. March 1941 turned out to be a dark month for the U-boat effort. Perhaps in a sign of things to come, inside of two weeks, Dönitz lost three of his decorated heroes. Günther Prien of U-47, he of the daring attack on the Royal Oak at Scapa Flow, renowned ace Otto Kretschmer of U-99, also known as the King of Tonnage by his peers. Kretschmer managed to escape his sinking U-boat after being depth-charged following an attack on a convoy southeast of Iceland and spent the rest of the war as a prisoner of war. And Joachim Shepke of U-100. Shepke and his crew were involved in the attack on the same convoy Kretschmer was. With that, some 150 men were either lost or captured. Despite this bad news for the German propaganda machine, late March, Winston Churchill privately sent Roosevelt to cry for help. In public, Churchill could not let on how precarious the Battle of the Atlantic had become so as to not damage morale. But the situation was not unlike the early months of 1917, when the Admiralty kept the real losses of the merchant fleet hidden from the public. Roosevelt knew the situation was dire. His own admirals were telling him as much. His chief of naval operations, Admiral Harold Stark, wrote a letter to Admiral Kimball in April of 1941. Stark wrote, The situation is obviously critical in the Atlantic. In my opinion, it is hopeless, except if we can take strong measures to save it. Without our giving effective aid, I doubt the British can do much more than see the year through, if that. The situation is much worse than the average person has any idea. Unquote. One idea making the rounds in the Roosevelt administration was assigning U.S. Navy destroyers to take over escort duty of the British and aid the Canadians for most of the journey over the Atlantic. 
But this would be roundly criticized by the isolationists and seen as an attempt by Roosevelt to shoehorn the U.S. into the war. Roosevelt had to take another approach. Whatever he did, it would have to be sold as a defensive measure. By that time, the Lend-Lease agreements were in effect. The U.S. would act as the arsenal of democracy, shipping resources and materiel to the British Isles. These goods needed to be protected, Roosevelt's administration argued, to ensure safe delivery to Britain. Meanwhile, out at sea, something extraordinary happened that finally gave the codebreakers at Bletchley Park in Britain the much-needed break they were looking for. As you'll remember from the previous episode, British codebreakers had come a long way in hacking the German Enigma encryption system with much help from their Polish colleagues. They had diligently worked for years to break Enigma with some help from information which they in turn had received from French intelligence, which in their turn had a spy within the German encryption apparatus. With the Polish advancements, the Brits had made great strides employing computing machines, but they had hit new snags. The German encryption specialists were of course aware that the enemy must be driving hard to undo their work, and so with each month they made Enigma more difficult to crack, adding rotors, adding more settings, adding more variables, more parameters, etc. The Brits needed a break to get a leg up on their adversaries. This they got on May 9th, 1941. You'll probably also remember the name Fritz Julius Lemp. He was the unlucky U-boat commander who managed to sink an ocean liner, the Athenia, which carried Americans on the first day of war, September 3, 1939. As said in episode 5.1, Lemp would be one of the unluckiest U-boat commanders of the war, not just because of the sinking of the Athenia, but also what transpired next. Now, Okay, it may not be completely fair to call him the unluckiest because after the sinking of the Athenia in U-30, Lemp got an earful back in Berlin, but he had since much improved his record, sinking many merchants and even severely damaged the British battleship, the HMS Barnum, by smashing a torpedo into her side, taking her out of action for months. Lemp had been awarded the Iron Cross Second Class, First Class, and even a Knight's Cross. Lemp started his war career with a howler and would also end with one. He had moved from the U-30, a Type 7A, to the U-110, a Type 9B submarine, a larger submarine for long-range operations. On April 15, U-10 left its port at Lorient on the French coast, sailed west, then moved north with the Irish coast on her starboard side, and sank a merchant some 300 miles or 600 kilometers northwest of the Blasket Islands. After this, Lemp made his way further northwest to patrol the sea lanes running from Canada's Newfoundland to Iceland. On May 9th, U-10 found a small convoy and sank two merchants out of nowhere. Lamp had managed to avoid the protective screen. But after the sinking of the merchants, the corvette HMS Orbricia and destroyers Broadway and Bulldog immediately chased the U-boat and found her, using ASDIC. They cornered U-110 and pummeled her with depth charges. U-110 was damaged by the charges and, unable to escape, Lamp ordered to surface. Now, the Royal Navy's first tack was, as said, to protect the convoys and second, to kill U-boats. But another task, if possible, was to capture a U-boat so as to maybe find an Enigma machine and anything else inside a German submarine that could be worthwhile to the war effort. The situation was chaos. The Corvette and destroyers were raising the U-boat with heavy machine guns and the captain of HMS Broadway decided to try something smart. Germans were known to scuttle their submarines to prevent capture, so instead of ramming the submarine, Broadway aimed two depth charges to explode below the sub to rile whoever was inside trying to scuttle her. The submarine's crew, probably thinking that their U-boat could sink at any second, quickly escaped the sub, including Lemp himself, who had jumped into the water with his men and swam from U-110 to prevent being sucked below water with the sinking U-boat. But to his horror, U-110 did not sink. 
What precisely happened to Limp in all the chaos is not completely clear, but survivors of his crew later reported that they saw Limp try to swim back to the submarine, possibly realizing the treasure trove that was awaiting the Brits inside her. Then he disappeared. It's assumed he either drowned or catched bullets from one of the British ships, or both. Fifteen other crew members also didn't survive the ordeal. While the surviving crew members were hoisted aboard the destroyers and corvette, British officers entered U-110, fully aware that she could sink any moment. They quickly rummaged through the compartments, taking with them anything that could be of interest, mostly papers and books, and quickly left the submarine again. When U-110 seemed stable, a second party entered, and in the radio compartment, a sailor saw an odd-looking typing machine that he took with him. This was the Enigma machine Bletchley Park had been looking for. The Brits tried to tow U-110 back home, but she sank off Iceland. The Enigma and the code books made their way to Bletchley Park. In time, the code books in particular helped Alan Turing and his people to crack the Kriegsmarine encryption, allowing British naval intelligence to decode U-boat positions, reports, and orders, which in turn helped the Admiralty steer convoys clear of U-boats until the Germans added yet another rotor to the Enigma, making the U-boats go dark again. But this is all covered in a future episode. The first shots fired in anger, and meanwhile, the Germans, by Americans in World War II, are believed to have been a depth charge attack on possible German U-boat. On April 10, 1941, USS Nyblack, a new destroyer of the Gleaves class, had come across three lifeboats filled with survivors of a merchant not far from Iceland. The destroyer's crew had started helping the men aboard when the sonar operator reported he had spotted a large underwater target. Assuming they had scoped the U-boat responsible for the drowning of the freighter, the Nyblack paused to rescue and launched a depth charge attack. There were no secondary explosions recorded and no wreckage was sighted, and it is to this day still not clear who or what Nyblack had spotted. German records after the war also offered no conclusive evidence, but at the time it was believed that this was the first time a U.S. warship had fired weapons at a German Navy unit. On May 27, 1941, Roosevelt expanded the American neutral zone much further east, so much so that it encompassed an area from the far north of Canada, east beyond Greenland to Iceland, then all the way to the south, even beyond Ascension Island, and then bending off west again to Rio de Janeiro. Thus, over 75% of the northern Atlantic now fell under the American umbrella of protection, leaving a relatively small swath of ocean for the British to surveil against U-boats. On July 12, 1941, U.S. forces took over from the British on Iceland. The way power over the island was handed over was, uh, murky? Icelanders had not exactly welcomed the British occupation, which had started already in May 1940 and then expanded from a small force to as much as 25,000 men to ensure that any invasion of the strategically crucial island by Germany would fail. In Berlin, meanwhile, there had actually been discussion of taking Iceland, but Hitler and his war cabinet decided against it, as it would be all but impossible to support troops there as the service fleet was in no position to protect resource and ammunition transports against the Royal Navy. Roosevelt agrees to Churchill's request that Americans take over, and the Icelandic government did not exactly get much say in all of this. British troops left, American troops came in their place, and that was it. Things were definitely starting to heat up between the U.S. Navy and the Kriegsmarine. On September 4 came the incident with the American destroyer USS Greer. A British plane spotted a U-boat, the U-652, a Type 7C commanded by George Werner Fratz. The Greer zigzagged and pinged, continuously reporting the U-boat's position to the bomber. The Brits dropped depth charges, and then, according to U.S. sources, about an hour later, U-652 fired a torpedo at the Greer, which responded with depth charges, but to no avail. Then another torpedo was seen missing the destroyer. 
A British destroyer entered the area, and Greer continued on course to Iceland. But her sonar again picked up U-652, and a new depth charge barrage followed, again without result. To this day, it isn't clear whether Fratz on U-652 even knew who he was shooting at. All he and his crew knew was that they were being chased very aggressively by a destroyer who was constantly harassing them with sonar. Now, when you're close to an active sonar, that by itself is quite a loud noise. But water acts as a conductor and an amplifier of sound. So, Francis' world was now very small under the deafening roar of constant sonar pings. Then, amidst all that ruckus, with Fratz trying to escape and hide, four depth charges from the British bomber exploded close to him, sending even more nose, noise and shockwaves throughout the damp, claustrophobia-inducing tube he was in. It's unclear he was even able to identify clearly who was precisely attacking him. It's likely he never knew the four charges were dropped by the British bomber. Being underwater all this time, it's unlikely he even knew there was an aircraft there. Now, I'm no submarine commander, and certainly not in a position Fratz was in at the moment, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination to comprehend what happened next. Fratz decided to strike back at his perceived pursuer, launching her torpedo, and then after that, being answered with depth charges, another torpedo. The fact that he did may be telling. U-boat commanders usually know better than to attack a destroyer, a fighting ship that essentially only had one goal in life, to sink U-boats. Either way, USS Greer is said to have dropped no fewer than 19 depth charges in the space of a few hours. This incident was the excuse Roosevelt needed. For months, he had dangerously explored the outer reaches of his presidential room for maneuver without setting off Congress, which definitely smelled a rat. For months, isolationist senators and hearings harangued admirals and government officials trying to find evidence of Roosevelt going beyond his remit, as Congress had, of course, to sign off on any war action. But their efforts were continuously stymied by a lack of evidence and Roosevelt allies who stalled and hemmed and hawed. But Roosevelt knew he had reached his limits. Admiral Stark, his chief of naval operations, in turn harangued Roosevelt to give him clear and concise orders. Yes, they were sending warships in harm's way, but to what end precisely? Were they to really escort British ships, and if so, what were they supposed to do? Just sit there and watch U-boats sink those merchants? Or were they allowed to attack to defend them? What precisely were the rules of engagement? According to Stark, in yet another letter to Admiral Kimmel, Roosevelt lashed out in one conversation, imploring the Admiral to stop asking questions, especially not pointed ones, and for Pete's sake, most certainly not in writing. But Roosevelt had reached the end of his tether. There was nothing more he could do, short of asking for a declaration of war which he knew he wouldn't get. But now, the incident with the USS Greer and U-652 gave him the argument he needed to drop the smoke and mirrors, especially since, after the U.S. publicized the matter, Hitler responded with his own communique, laying the blame at the feet of the Americans. This was confirmation that Roosevelt needed. On September 11, he went on radio in one of his famous fireside chats to the nation and minutely explained what had transpired. Here's an audio clip of his speech to the nation. My fellow Americans... The Navy Department of the United States has reported to me that on the morning of September 4th, the United States destroyer Greer, proceeding in full daylight toward Iceland, had reached a point southeast of Greenland. She was carrying American mail to Iceland. She was flying the American flag. Her identity as an American ship was unmistakable. She was then and there attacked by a submarine. Germany admits that it was a German submarine. The submarine deliberately fired a torpedo at the Greer, followed later by another torpedo attack. 
In spite of what Hitler's propaganda bureau has invented, and in spite of what any American obstructionist organization may prefer to believe, I tell you the blunt fact that the German submarine fired first upon this American destroyer without warning and with deliberate design to sink her. Our destroyer at the time was in waters which the government of the United States had declared to be waters of self-defense, surrounding outposts of American protection in the Atlantic. In the north of the Atlantic, outposts have been established by us in Iceland, in Greenland, in Labrador, and in Newfoundland. Through these waters the pass many ships of many flags. They bear food and other supplies to civilians, and they bear material of war for which the people of the United States are spending billions of dollars, and which, by congressional action, they have declared to be essential for the defense of our own land. The United States destroyer, when attacked, was proceeding on a legitimate mission. If the destroyer was visible to the submarine when the torpedo was fired, then the attack was a deliberate attempt by the Nazis to sink a clearly identified American warship. On the other hand, if the submarine was beneath the surface of the sea, and with the aid of its listening devices fired, in the direction of the sound of the American destroyer, without even taking the trouble to learn its identity, as the official German communique would indicate, then the attack was even more outrageous. Roosevelt felt free to drop all pretense. He declared the neutral zone necessary for the defense of the United States and added to that the necessity of maintaining freedom of the seas as paramount and worth defending and vowed that American warships would defend any merchant, regardless of flag. From now on, Roosevelt added, if German or Italian vessels of war enter the waters, the protection of which is necessary for American defense, they do so at their own peril. In Germany, meanwhile, U-boat production was moving ahead full steam. Donetsk now on paper had close to 200 submarines, allowing U-Boat Command to finally remain in the offensive. Torpedo problems were increasingly becoming a thing of the past. U-Boat Commanders could now report one hit, one kill in after-action reports. Still, Donetsk favored his beloved Agile Type 7C submarines, which continued to be hampered only by its limited range as compared to the heavier, less agile Type 9Bs. To extend the range of the seven seas, forward resupply ships were necessary, but with U.S. and British service warships still reigning the ocean, Dunnets had to come up with an alternative. They conceived of a special type of submarine, the Type 14 supply U-boats. They were essentially Type 9s, but with the length of a 7C and a wider beam, with a displacement of almost 1,700 tons instead of the 1,000 tons of a 9B. Because of their compressed, bloated body type, they would quickly be dubbed Milchkua, or milk cows. They would carry no torpedoes or deck gun and only anti-aircraft guns. Their job was simple. Move to positions northeast and east of Newfoundland and serve as a resupply platform for the patrolling U-boats, carrying torpedoes, fuel, and as much food as possible, allowing for U-boats to remain on station longer. 
The first such milk cow would be commissioned in November, right in time for things to come later in the year. The German Beedienst, basically Germany's Bletchley Park, was also working wonders, cracking the codes of the Royal Navy and the Merchant Fleet, and thus guiding U-boats to their convoy targets using powerful AM radio transmitters. In September of 1941, some 53 vessels of all kinds would be sunk, amounting to 200,000 tons, doubling the scoreboard of August. In October, these numbers would be lowered by a third, but that didn't capture the headlines. Instead, October 1941 would see the United States all but declare war on the Kriegsmarine in Germany. On October 16, the destroyer USS Kearney and three other US destroyers were in the harbor of Reykjavik, Iceland, when they responded to a merchant convoy being attacked. Racing to the scene, Kearney's sonar picked up an underwater target and depth charged it. Hours later, U-568, a Type 7C of Commander Joachim Preuss, put a torpedo into Kearney's starboard side. Remarkably, although a torpedo blew a big hole into Kearney and 11 men died, the destroyer didn't sink and limped back to Reykjavik for emergency repairs. Back home, Roosevelt condemned the U-boat's attack, claiming it to be uncalled for and framed it as an unsolicited attack, clearly avoiding the fact that the American destroyer had depth-charged the U-boat first. Shortly thereafter, on October 29, USS Salinas, an armed oil tanker of the U.S. Navy used to replenish transport ships, was attacked by U-106, Type 9B, commanded by Helmut Rasch, several hundred miles east of Newfoundland. A U.S. destroyer, USS DuPont, threw depth charges at the U-boat, but U-106 escaped safely. Then, on October 31, came the infamous sinking of the USS Reuben James, an old destroyer of the namesake class. Reuben James was escorting convoy Halifax 156 out of Canada, east of Newfoundland, when the convoy came under attack by a wolfpack. Reuben James was depth-charging what it thought to be a U-boat when one torpedo of several from U-552, a Type 7C commanded by Erich Topp, aimed at a munitions transport, struck the destroyer, blowing off her entire bow and sending off an explosion in the forward ammunitions magazine. The ship broke in two and sank, taking some 100 crew with her. It was the bloodiest loss for the U.S. Navy to date, and it became increasingly hard for anyone to deny that for all sense and purposes, the United States and Nazi Germany were already at war with each other. <laughs> 